HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Patrick Cappiello, wine director, partner at Rebel and Renegade Wine Dinner in New York City. We'll talk about, well, basically everything wine with Patrick. We'll taste something old and something new for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Patrick Cappiello is the multi-award winning wine director partner at Rebel and the Renegade Wine Dinner in New York City. He's chef sommelier for the La Pauli Burgundy Festival, food and wine host for Playboy magazine, and creator of 40-ounce wines. So that's the proper intro. Now I'm going to do the alternative intro. Okay? <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Patrick Cappiello, also known on Mulberry Street as Patty Caps. <laughs> is the tattoo-clad, saber-rattling, metal t-shirt-loving, video-game-playing wine guru at Rebel on the Bowery in New York City, where he's the partner and wine director and founder of the Renegade Wine Dinner. When he's not hanging out with the bunnies, he's the food and wine host for Playboy magazine and also chef sommelier for the wine orgy that we know as La Pauli. Patrick is also the creator of highly addictive 40-ounce wines. Patrick, welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you. It's good to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. Me, too. I'm sorry it's taken me so long. You've been... Um, Chasing. Very me. persistent, Chasing and, and I appreciate it. I, I, 
This is my one of my favorite places to be. Patrick's just because I get to crush pizza and drink beer uh, while I'm working, I guess. God bless Patrick. <laughs> Patrick is a big supporter of Heritage Radio Network and has been on a lot of shows. I have. All right, Patrick, we want to assume that my listeners, some know about you, some don't. So I want you to quickly tell us about your journey in life and wine that got you to the point where you're at now, which is Rebel. Yeah, yeah, totally. So work me up to that. <clears throat> well, I mean, I, I, I've been in the restaurant business since I was very, very young. Pardon me, I'm super hoarse today. Um, and uh, I'd like to say it's because I'm sick and I, no, I, I'm kind of hesitant. No, Patrick was at the Ranger game. I, we're not supposed to talk about that. I'm opening a restaurant in Philadelphia. I'm going to be fucked because all the Don't Flyers worry about it. Patrick was at the Ranger game and both of us are going tomorrow night. I'm goddamn right. Let's go Rangers. All right. Sorry. Um, yes. Uh, I started uh, in the restaurant business when I was 15 and have done literally everything there is to do from washing dishes to busing tables. Tell to people where you grew up. I grew up in Rochester, New York. America's a, most beautiful city. It's a pretty amazing place. I grew oh up uh, in a very loving household, lower middle class, uh, you know, household that had no interest in wine. My parents gave no shits about wine and never had it on the table, so I had no exposure to it. Um, after many years in the restaurant business, I moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and I worked at a restaurant called the Baricelli Inn, a guy named Paul, Paul Manillo, Paulie Manillo, owned this great restaurant. It was probably the finest like the most fine dining restaurant in, in Cleveland? Cleveland, Ohio. It's gone now, but great restaurant. And Paul was super passionate about wine and had a great cellar. And he provided his cellar to um, uh, guests of the restaurant. It was on the wine list was basically his personal cellar. It was it was a great list. And I have a copy of it. Good. Great food too. Yeah, I know he's a, he's a great chef. So I didn't really know anything about it or really care about it, but I noticed that the the waiters that were working next to me. And it wasn't a pooled house. This is back in the day. I mean, I'm old, so there actually was a time Not when pooled old. house I'm didn't old. exist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I noticed that the waiters that were there that were selling these expensive bottles of wine were walking home with way more money than me. And I was like, you know what? There's got to be, there's probably something in this. Like, what the, f- let's f- maybe I should learn about this wine stuff so that I can make more money. So got it was 100% attention. greed that drove me into the wine business. But after I started learning about it, and um, the first book I had was Kevin Zrelli's Windows on the World. It was a super inspirational book, and the and the more I learned, the more I read, the more I tasted, the more excited I became. And so then I how fell, long I fell were you at that line. restaurant? I was there for about a year, and then I moved to New York. And Polly, you know what's funny? People say, "Why would you go to Cleveland?" And I guess the answer is because I live in Rochester. It's like <laughs> a step up, right? Actually, my ex wife was doing her master's degree. She was. That's why I went That's to Cleveland. Okay. <laughs> um, there you go. So I so Paul Manillo recommended Tribeca Grill as being a restaurant to go to because he was friends with the chef. He's like they have a great wine program, and that's when I started at Tribeca Grill. Two thousand and one. August of 01, I started at Tribeca Grill. David Gordon was the wine director. Um, and but be- you didn't go into the wine program. I was, I was a waiter who right. spent a fuck ton of wine in the cellar. I was like, I'm interested. I want to learn. There's, this is a blossoming program. When I started, it was like 800 bottles on the list. And by the time I left, they had to win the Grand Award from Wine Spectator. I was the first sommelier that they had on the floor there. Working with Yoshi Takamura, who was one of my best friends, who was a great sommelier and, and worked with me at Veritas as well. Um, so, yeah, then that happened. Four years at Tribeca Grill. Tim Kopech uh, came knocking and asked me if I wanted to take a, a position at Veritas. And in 2004, 2005, was not a bad time to be there. So, so quickly tell people what Veritas was. It was a terrific restaurant. It was, great chef. Was it Scott Bryan? Scott Bryan was a chef when I was there. But the wine program was off the charts it was because... Epic. Yeah, because there was two um, collectors, uh, Steve Verlin, who, God rest his soul, and Parkby Smith, who uh, were huge, passionate collectors who... Um, 
basically opened their personal cellars up to the restaurant for sale. So this wine list was unreal. Old vintages of Burgundy and Bordeaux and, um, you know, crazy amounts of champagne and all this interesting wine that you couldn't get anywhere. And they were really letting it go for, like, no money at all. Right. Which was super inspirational. So that was a pretty amazing four years. I tasted more great wine in those four years, and I've said this probably more times than I care to, but I've t- I definitely tasted m- you know, more great wine in that four years than I probably will ever taste in my career. It was unreal. Like, so as good as lucky. Tribeca Grill was. And, Tribeca and was that great. list evolved. Amazing. The Veritas I mean, list was like top of the game, Especially right? at that time. Yeah. At that time. So then uh, after uh, I left Veritas in 2009. But wait, slip something yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, we'll talk about it at some point. There's the Burgundy Festival, La Paulie. La Paulie. You started La Paulie. You started. Well, I de- Daniel Jonas, whose whose event it is, he he created La Paulie. When I was working at Tribeca Grill, he started it the year before 2000. He started it, and uh, I used to work um, it for him. I used to be as one of the psalms, and um, over the course of time, David Gordon was the chef sommelier there solo. He was the guy running the running the sommelier team. So at some point. In the last five or so years, David started to have an interest to kind of scaling back his uh, workload. So they brought me on board as one of the psalms that help run the show. So I'm super lucky to have two guys that I love and look up to uh, allow me to help run something. In the in the end, unfortunately, they're making me manage right. 110 sommeliers, which is like hurting. And how many years? A cat, been a, at a that? room of cats. I, uh, it's a. Uh, Five or six years now, I've been I've been doing that with David. Yeah, wow. yeah, and Reese Ozowski, who's the other the other uh, right. uh, chef on there. So from yeah. the Morea Group, correct. Right. So, yeah. So then that that Veritas, I left. Sorry, I'm rushing it. I'm trying to get us. No, on no, the you're doing a good stuff. job. Very admirable. <laughs> you may get the award for the best and fastest uh, biography. Oh, Levy Dalton once told me, "You always tell the same fucking story. Can you please say something different for once?" So I'm trying to follow his advice. <laughs> um, so uh, then I took a job as the wine director of uh, Gilt Restaurant, which is a two Michelin star restaurant at the New York Palace Hotel that Paul Lieber was the opening chef for. Jason Ferris, who was the sommelier, head sommelier there before me, or the wine director there before me, started a really great wine list. It was like probably an 800 bottle list I walked into, and they had an interest in acquiring a grand award from Wine Spectator. So they gave me kind of an open checkbook. I mean, the Sultan of Brunei owned the place, so what the fuck? Like, and it was 2009, no one was buying wine. I remember being in like, like at Den- Restaurant Danielle during like Zaki's auctions and like being like one of four people that were actually bidding on wine. And I was just like taking stuff for so cheap. I remember, yeah, like, like it was pretty, pretty amazing time. It was a scary time for wine, but so, um, uh, I built that wine list up to over 3000 selections. Jesus. We won the grand award when I was there. And then, uh, that restaurant unfortunately closed. And um, why did it close? It closed because the hotel was purchased by a, a, a Midwestern finance company that didn't see the value of a two Michelin star restaurant and a wine cellar worth right. $2 million that never made any money. Wasn't Cereal <laughs> Macchioni in there before he you was. guys? Yeah, that was where uh, Le Cirque 2000 Le was there. Was there. Was yeah, a, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a weird time for them. Kind of but. an interesting space. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. But it's a hotel that's run by a union and, and you know, labor costs, uh, being what they are with the union uh, service staff, was challenging. And Did we you could see never that coming? Well, it was always union when I walked in. No, but it. did you see the fact that it was going to? Yeah, close? when these guys bought it, I mean, I saw when they walked in. These guys Riding said, "You know what wall. I mean?" They weren't wearing the same shoes as the guys from the Dorchester Group. Like right. these guys were wearing like floor shines, and the guys <laughs> in the Dorchester Group were wearing like Louis Vuitton. Right. It's a little different. So their appreciation for whatever it was, and like not my style. I don't give a shit about any of that. Like right. all that fancy stuff is not me. But it was where I worked, and and yeah, I saw the writing on the wall real quick. We knew we were in trouble. 
but uh, we ended it gracefully. I think we ended it well. And, and uh, you know, then I was, they actually hired me to stay back on as the wine director of the hotel, which would have been an awesome opportunity and really an honor to do. Um, but you while didn't I was, take the job. Well, I was sitting on my couch, you know, playing video games and, uh, and, and getting up to whatever I could do to pass the time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, a friend of mine contacted me about a restaurant he was opening on the Bowery. Uh, Richard Quo was the opening chef for Pearl and Ash and said, hey, man, we're opening this restaurant. I know you're kind of on hiatus. Do you want to come and maybe help us out? And so I said, yeah, sure. It's something fun to do. So I was started as the consulting, you know, sommelier for Pearl and Ash. And then after six months, my business partner, Brandon McCrill, basically approached me and said, listen, you should stay here and be a partner. And I'm like, fuck you, dude. I'm going back to my cushy job up midtown. And after you, all, you were hesitant. I, well, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Because I, I knew people who own restaurants and I know that that's not, it's, it's like you a stressful ready. thing. Plus I, I had this like opportunity to have, you know, this unlimited budget. And although it was appealing to me, like I, I loved the idea. I was, I was, I don't know. I just never imagined that I could pull that off. You know, you'd think, like the idea of being a restaurant owner sounds like such a big fucking deal. It's 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 really you know once you get into it, it's fun and amazing, but it was super intimidating. So honestly, I was scared. Um, but you got to get out of your comfort yeah, zone. Yeah, hundred percent. And he know. and Brandon convinced me to take a chance on it, and we uh, and we went full glass of pearl and ash, and we started really ramping the wine list up. And again, same thing. We got the grand award from Wine Spectator, and shortly after that, we opened Rebel. All right, so we're gonna a little later. We're gonna talk about. Carl and Ash, yeah. Rebel, we're going to talk about all that stuff. Cool. But I want to talk to you about uh, a bunch of other things in between. But a couple things. When you look back about, you know, what you did, two things kind of jump out. One is you increased the crap out of the wine list. Yeah. And you delivered a Wine Spectator Grand Award. Right. Veritas had one, right? Tribeca Grill. Tribeca Grill and Gills. Gills yeah. And you started with a certain amount of bottles and we left with, with the, way more, right? We opened with a 200-bottle wine list at Pearl and Ash uh, the week we opened. Levy Dalton wrote a really nice article in Eater, which Eater. really, I think, sparked the interest of the industry. And the industry came out in full force. People were so supportive. I mean, if you read the New York Times review... Of um, Pearl and Ash? Pearl and Ash. Pete, Pete Wells, Wells? Yeah, he references the fact, first of all, that Mike D was there one night, which he was, and then he references the fact that Michelle... Good hipness factor. Yeah, it's not a bad, not a bad thing to have. And, right. and Mike has become a friend of mine and is super into wine. He's a wine, wine guy, right? Super into wine. And a cool, cool guy. Like, really great. Like, Noble Rot. He just did an interview with <laughs> Noble Rot magazine and, like, like, like gave me a mention in Pearl and Ash and Rebel. I'm like... Nice. My friend Pax Molly wrote me. He's like, did you see that Mike D talked about you in Novarado? I was like, it's like nice head scratching shit. But so um, Pete Wells talked about the fact that like Michelle Couvreau and all these other sommeliers were hanging out there. And it's what it was. It was like one every night was another another, you know, group of psalms and group of wine people and winemakers and chefs. And the but industry there were, drove there weren't that a restaurant. ton of places to go. So you wanted totally. to create a spot that stayed open late. Well, you know, when I when I first moved to New York. I was interested in wine, but like back in 2001, there were only a few wine destination restaurants and you could go to none of them unless you had a suit to tie on. Right. And you look at me, I mean, I've always been the same interest in being casual. I wore a suit while I had to work, but I I died for the idea of of having a place where you could be that was casual. And then Paul Greco started, started terroir and that definitely started the movement. And I look at him as an inspiration. Like Paul definitely laid the foundation that helped us create it. But there wasn't a lot of restaurants that you go to and have a meal and spend a lot of time and look at a wine list and get excited and see a lot of great value. And Tribeca Grill and Veritas had all that stuff. Right. But it wasn't like geared for young people. It was still something that was like adult. It was more mainstream still. Or just like, yeah, yeah, a little little more uh, tense. Uh, although Trevor Tra- 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 Girl is pretty pretty laid back now yeah, that I think about it. It's always been laid back. Totally. Yeah. 
But so that was the inspiration to try and create something that would be fun that, you know, 20 something year old kids with tattoos and piercings could have a great bottle of natural wine, but businessmen who just finished downtown feel that's open for everybody. Exactly. All right. Let me ask you a few things. Sure. So I'm going to start with a general question and I think you're more than qualified uh, to answer this. (laughs) Okay. Um, Nervous already. And we talked about this before. Tell me about what the state, what is the state of and how you see the restaurant business now in general and how it pertains to you, your ventures, and yeah. wine. Um, I mean, I think you've seen <laughs> a lot of changes personally and in the market, and you alluded to some of that now. Yeah. I mean, the it's, you know, I think that the whole country and the whole world is is facing the fact that consumers of food and wine are different now, right? Millennials have a different way of approaching things. And I've always connected with millennials. I'm a Gen Xer, but I've always felt connected to the millennial generation because um, I think that they question authority in a way that maybe my generation didn't, and, and I like that. I'm inspired by it. All, all of my sommeliers are from that generation, and, and I admire it. So that's great, but at so the same time... The, the market is being dominated 100%. Millennials by millennials. Are cha- 100%. And they're, they're inquisitive, time. like you said, right. and active. But they're also, they also don't necessarily want to be conventional. They don't want to necessarily follow the idea of, well, this is the way my parents ate, so I should eat the same way. They're kind of like, fuck that. I don't want to eat that way. I want to eat how I want to eat. And, you know, they're... They're changing the game in some ways and in not great ways from somebody, you know, who runs a restaurant. Give me one of the not great ways. I mean, look at the way that they consume. The way they consume everything is different, right? They don't own televisions, first of all, which is fucking insane to me. Landline phones. No, no, nothing. Like, so, like, but, but they also don't, they don't, it's, it's, they, the, the way that they don't go to the movies, right? It's it's crazy, and they don't like they don't, they don't have really cable go to restaurants. TV. Exactly, right. and they don't really go to restaurants. They 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 want to go. They want to stop in a restaurant and eat something, and then they want to go to a bar and have a drink, and then they want to have a bite to eat later. They want to keep. They want to keep moving. They, their their attention span is of a certain point, and them sitting down in a restaurant and having a two and a half hour meal over several bottles of wine, like you and I like to do, not really in their you know view. Also, they're from a different economic uh, thing. I mean, there's a lot more of them. They're fighting for jobs. A lot of them still live in the less fucking money. basements. Of course. So right. it's, it, that's hard, and I get they're that. They're not balling with bottles of 100%, wine. 100%. And they don't and they, want to. They'd rather rent their apartment while they go to Spain for a month right. and Airbnb it. I would. I don't want any of these strangers sleeping in my fucking bed. I'm not airbnb in my no. apartment ever. That's that's insanity. But like millennials have no problems doing that. That's weird shit to me. But I understand I it, and I, and, I, and, I want, and I want to understand how we, how we, how we work on that. So, you know, at Rebel we've done a lot of things we started doing delivery you know we we've we, we were open as an all-day cafe you have opportunity to roll in there with a laptop and have a cafe have a have a you know cup of coffee melissa weller who's doing our pastries you can have a little snack daniel eddie who's the chef will make a you know a, a steak sandwich for you we're trying to understand it and then in the evenings it's the same thing like having a, a you know a bar menu that's a little more casual it's not like they're asking for hamburgers and french fries like you and i were they're asking for different stuff they they appreciate Great products, healthy. And healthy is a hundred percent part of it. Yeah, kind of cool and rustic. Yes, I would say that they're like Small things like plates. roast chicken and like there, there. It's it's stuff that you and I would eat that our that our mom would make, but maybe they ha- didn't have the opportunity to right. have those kind of home cooked meals. So they don't know how to cook themselves, which I really think is what it's what it probably is. Most millennials probably are not awesome home cooks because they live in tiny apartments or they're always on the run. Or I agree. Yeah, 
So I, anyway, I, I that's agree. a rant right there. I need a drink. So the pivot, <laughs> the, the pivot was to the millennials because they're an important segment of your market. Hundred percent. So you adopt everybody, to that. Everybody's doing it, man. You have to. You have to adopt to it. Yeah. You have. You have to look at the fact that they're controlling things now and either get on board or get out of their way. I think is the way you got to look at it. All right. So let's ask the same question about sommeliers. Mm-hmm. You know, I asked you. You know, what's the state and how do you see the restaurant business? How do you see sommeliers in general? And how does it pertain to what you're doing, you know, in wine? Right. What's going on with sommeliers, let's say, today versus well, when I, you got in the business? Again, I think that they're a product of the generation. Um, you know, I have sommeliers that are amazingly dedicated people. Kimberly Precocian, who you've interviewed. Amazing. She's great. Really great. Bryn Burkhan, who, who left us uh, to go work with um, Stephen uh, Bitteroff from Von Bowden. Amazing. Caitlin Couric, uh, Caitlin, Caitlin uh, sorry, Caitlin's going to kill me for fucking her name. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin is, is going to be the uh, the head psalm for our restaurant that we're opening in Philadelphia. Also an amazing hard worker. So plenty of great examples of millennials and their staff that works under them are also amazing, supportive and, and, and great. But I'm lucky to have this roster of people who work hard. And we've had plenty of people who started in the wine program and then gave up. Um, and that's, that's difficult uh, to see. But I think that it's an example of the fact that sommeliers nowadays want, they want, a, they want a shortcut to what they see as what a sommelier is or what success is. And I think that's a true for millennials as a generation. They're looking for a shorter way to get there because... So the route you took... You I don't think that, yeah. You sort of had to take. I worked Because for years. you to get to your own restaurant, or yeah. let's say to get to Guilt, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be how you would describe a millennial today. I worked for eight years as a cellar rat and a floor psalm before right. I bought one single bottle of wine at Veritas Drive. Great, great, great places, admittedly, to work, but I never bought a bottle of wine until I was 36 years old. No one does that. Right. No one does that. So millennials have changed the game as far as hundred hundred percent. But I think in, in it's for good and bad. I think that they've they've encouraged because there's such interest in it and a passion for it that restaurateurs see that there's access to sommeliers and the people that actually want to buy and sell wine to their guests. So they be like, wow, I should have a sommelier. But in some ways, I think restaurants that probably should not have a sommelier have brought that on. And then since they have, two things have happened. They've changed the role of what a sommelier is. There's a lot more sommelier roles now that involved a lot more management, a lot more hours, a lot more duality. Like they're having to do a ton of other things as opposed to concentrating on the wine list, which I think burns them out. And then I think also the fact that there are restaurants that probably can't really afford a wine program that, that would warrant a sommelier. If you have a, a 50 bottle wine list, just have a step of your waiters. Exactly. You don't need a sommelier on the floor. Yeah. That guy's going to be bored and leave. Yeah. So I think that as a result, there's been a lot more sommeliers that have become unemployed. And now we have, you know what I mean? It's like actors, yeah. right? I mean, there's a lot of unemployed actors in this city. And I think that there's right now a lot of unemployed songs in the city, but it's not because they, not because there aren't, there aren't jobs for them. I think that they just want to be like Raj Parr. Like right. they look at Raj and they're like, Raj busted his ass, man. That right. guy came here as an immigrant and worked his ass off to be where he is. He didn't get to be Raj Parr overnight. He worked very hard to get where he is. And that's not the job. No. Raj Parr is like the retired version of a sommelier and an amazing version of it. But that's not actually the job. You know, I think of two people. I had Kevin Zraeli on last year and he said when he started in the business, there were maybe five restaurants with sommeliers. Completely. He goes, now you go into a restaurant and there's five sommeliers. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's true. that has changed. <laughs> and a good friend of mine who was on Gary Vaynerchuk is yeah. all about patience and paying your dues. Totally, and it Gary's doesn't sound like the sommeliers today. 
you know, want to put the chops in, you know, to get where they want to be. Yeah. All right. So a good segue to that, because of millennials, is social media. I want to talk to you about social media, because I think it's important to you and to your places. Sure. Um, Let's first talk about how social media has changed the wine game and how you, you know, embrace it. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, I've talked about this before with other people, but I mean, I always pay pay up to um, Mike Madrigal and, and Raj Parr for two guys that really taught me about it. Because I was not, I'm I'm actually not super, I'm, I'm a pretty introverted person across the board, even though I seem like I'm not. I, I don't, you know, well, I have the same five you. friends. Like that this I, dude is wild. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of fun with my friends. I'm not going to lie. Those guys will tell you I'm not an introverted person, but I'm not, I'm not overly trying to, to, to make new friends. Right. I've never been on Facebook. <clears throat> I've never been on MySpace. I don't know what any of that shit is. When Raj Parr came to me at, at Guilt, he's like, dude, how does nobody know about this great wine program you have? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I did it. They should have, uh, it's here. Is it you have to tell people? It was a teeny bit young then, and it shows you how ahead of it Raj was. 100%. Because then it was borderline. Now, if you don't do it, it's like, what's your problem? Yeah. He basically signed me up for Twitter that night, and I was like, Jesus, all right. (laughs) And then, you know, Instagram came around. I got on Instagram because I like taking photos. So my friends, who are mainly artists and designers, all were like, oh, we're on this thing. You should check it out. I was like, oh, this is awesome. You can take pictures and like show them with your friends. That's the kind of thing I'm going to do. I don't need to worry about like, you know, ex-girlfriends from high school coming back after me or whatever it is that everybody's afraid of to go on Facebook. I I, I don't want that. I don't want that. I I had, nobody was nice to me in high school. But you have a rebel Facebook page. Yeah, I don't don't want anybody from high school who didn't give a shit about me to contact me on the internet. So fuck those people. I'm right with you. So that's why I'm not on it. But yeah, there's a rebel. I guess there's a rebel Facebook. I don't know. Or, or who somebody controls that, but there it's is. definitely not me. There is. Um, but so that the Instagram became interesting to me. So really, Instagram, I embrace. I've been on it since like it started. Like you can look back at my feed. I think somebody made me look at some point. I don't know what the first year was that I was on it, but it's a long time. But it wasn't back in the day pictures of wine, and then slowly but surely I started realizing, oh, if I take a picture of a bottle of wine, people seem to be responding, responding, and then all of a sudden some guy comes up to me and says, oh, I follow you on Instagram. And I'm like, that's super fucking weird that you're telling me that, bro. But I'm like, okay, cool. Welcome to the restaurant. And sort then of I, what it is. You 100%. don't think about it. Yeah. But guys are checking in every day. You yeah. Know, what's Patrick doing? That's an honor. And you're, I feel you're an influencer. And that's, that's, that's super cool. And, and I'm, I hope that I'm doing it justice. And, and I, I hope that people continue to want to support the restaurants because of it. And yeah, I'll do it. I mean, if I, I remember one time I took a picture of my nephew and niece in front of a Waffle House. And I think I got like three people like acknowledged it. And I'm like, you know what? Okay, so people don't give a fuck about my personal life. Great. I'll never take a picture of anything having to do with my personal life again. <laughs> so, so that's how social media works for you personally. Personally. I mean, yeah. that's how you've embraced it. It gives me you, an opportunity. You're not to gaga explore. about promoting no. yourself, promoting. You I mean, know, it's your promoting venue. yourself. Of course, no, 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 no you are, it but is, it's but not. You, you know, you do it at your pleasure, type thing. I, I try to be responsible with it, and I appreciate the power of right. it, and I'm, I'm I'm psyched that it exists. So let's talk about how social media has changed. You know, sort of the wine game, and I could tell you that you know to sort of stimulate this conversation. You know, when you and I were a little younger and nerdy and wine, there were two, three guys that were voices. Yeah. You know, Parker, Berghan, whoever it was, mm-hmm. Wine Spectator. Yeah. Now, social media, the internet, has opened it up, you know, to the point where there's a million voices. I mean, do you see, like Raj Parr has a voice. Huge you one. have a voice. Yeah. Do you, you see that? Totally. I think it's, you know... I think in some ways the playing field has kind of been even by it. Uh, I think you know when, when you, if you're if you're a journalist or a critic, you have a different 
you know, you have a different level of power, right? When you're a sommelier, you only have an influence on the people that are in your dining room. Right. Traditionally. Right. When you're a critic or a journalist, you have access to all these people that, that are following what you're doing in a periodical or in a newsletter or in a magazine. And that's that's a huge different set of t- and it's the same thing in but some ways the same way it's the dining media room well it's, it, it, give it, that to the sommelier well i think that it just it just gave everybody whether a you're a sommelier or a or a journalist or a critic the same kind of access to people right. and and people that were it's a captive audience uh-huh. and an audience that's that's you know excited about finding out information and i don't think it's it's it shouldn't it's not there to harm or help any one of us i think it, in the end it's better for the people who want to buy wine and know about it right there's there's way more voices, way more people that are and people can select and choose. Right, if they're like, I don't like this asshole because he drinks too much natural wine, or I don't like this right. guy because he drinks too much fancy, you know, old old uh, French wine. Then you can make your decision and you can say, I don't want to hear his voice. I and you just shut him off. <laughs> I find a lot of discovery on it. Yeah, you know, I, I could see things that you're doing and what you're drinking. You know, when you're Completely. traveling, obviously, if you're traveling, you're stopping at certain wineries. Those are important to you. Yeah. Or you're anxious to see them. You know, that's an influencer thing. And, and everybody, you know, has that. Right. So there's a huge amount of discovery. Um, so we see social media as a positive. I think so. I mean, for me, it's been a huge help for my business. And um, I, I know that people, other people that are, that are involved in it are as excited as I am. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's good. And I think it's going to continue to be that. I way. don't think it's going anywhere. No, 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 no. <laughs> right. Let's drop a little, uh, while I have you here, let's drop a little wine knowledge okay. on our listeners, all right? So let me uh, blast through a few questions. All right. Let's talk about what are some wines we should be drinking now? And the context is seasonal. You know, so you don't have to say rosé. Yeah. And also what's sort of hot now. You know, what should be people what should people be eyeing? Um, in your this is all your opinion and direction. I'm yeah. I mean, I'm still very psyched on what's happening with the new young generation of 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 American, not California, not New California, a new American winemakers. And you know, looking at like at a Chris Matheson, amazing a kid, likes. awesome right. example. Like Bellwether, right. I think is awesome, and I know Chris really well, and I think he makes fucking great wine. I had him on, and yeah, he was terrific. I mean, uh, you know, I think that there are, the, and, and obviously, what's happened? There's producers in Oregon that are, that are doing the same thing, um, like a Walter I, Scott or something. Uh, well, White Rose, I think is great. Bodecker, I think is great. I mean, I think there are, there are there are young producers that are that are focusing on more classic kind of winemaking techniques. And and really making wines that deliver so, from the world areas. Bellwether, Chris Matheson, give yeah. me the Washington guys. Give me the specifics. Who well, you mention? Wa- in, in Oregon or, 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 or Oregon? Or, or, Oregon, 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 Oregon White, White, Ro- White Rose is great. And White Rose, Bodeck, that's the winery? Yeah, Bodecker is another one Bodecker. that's really great. And then in California, I mean, you got people like Michael Cruz, who is just like right. fucking slaying it. Scott Schultz from Jolie Laid is great. And then you have the guys that kind of were leading that charge, like Steve Mathiason and Pax Male, uh, Roger They're like old timers at yeah, this point. Yeah, I mean, those guys, those, well, those guys started the movement i think that that inspired the rest of the world and you know and then you have like even people like for me looking at somebody like maynard james keenan who's a friend and i'm a fan of his music so so maynard j keenan is the lead singer of tool tool and And, pussifer and a perfect circle right and he 
is Arizona based. He makes wine in Arizona, and he he started his own wine and wine, he's, and, and he's, he's truly dedicated. I know out, you were out there not that long ago, right? Mind. Yeah, he's out of his mind. Yeah, I am. I he's an intense him. dude, and amazing. And he, yeah. but if you see what he's doing out there, it's pretty pretty spectacular. And the, the wines are great. They're, they are they have gotten. I mean, I've tasted the wines from the inception when he was making it with grapes blended from uh, Paso Robles. Like they, then they started off very good, but I mean, they started off good. I shouldn't say that. Right. If he's, I, don't, I don't think he's listening. Well, thank to God this. he got better. But if he is listening, go like, fuck yourself. Mate. I don't care. <laughs> but they're great now, and he's really trying to change the way that he's making wine in, in in a way because now he's really making the wines. He had a guy that was making the wines that turned out to be not such a great dude and kind of screwed him over a little bit. Um, and and I think that he didn't have the freedom to express himself the way that he does now. But now he's really on. He's making the guy makes the wine. He doesn't tour in the fall because he so wants he make to make wine. wine. So I, I guess the takeaway is you don't even have to look outside of the country. There's some exciting wines and winemakers all over the U.S. One, outside of you know what people perceive as just the Napa Sonoma area, 100, which is a nice thing. All right, let's while we're on that, let's talk about natural wine. Since I've been doing this show, the natural wine movement has been in place. But I've heard a million different voices on this. The <laughs> Raw Wine Fair came out to Brooklyn last fall. It was cool to have that. They had a great, you know, showing. I think you're an advocate of natural wines. You carry all the mainstream and natural. Just tell me, tell me your take on natural, organic, biodynamic, you know, wines. Are they good? Why are they good? Why are they important? I, you know, I'm... Uh, I discovered like natural wine. I always do like my finger quotes when I say that <laughs> shit because I, who even knows what that means. I discovered those wines through a very good friend of mine who was a mentor, um, a guy named Joe Doherty, who had sadly passed away. And, and he was a guy who was super into the wines, but he used to come to Veritas all the time and was happy to drink Rumier or not just Rumier, not even fancy stuff, like like regular, like just normal, like great Burgundian producers like Munir Jaborg back before it was Munir Jaborg. But he also would be interested in these wines that we didn't have on the wine list at Veritas. And he would bring bottles in from time to time for me to taste. And I grew interested in them, primarily from the Loire Valley. Loire. And when I started at the hotel, he would come there and really kind of help me add a lot of that stuff so to the wine list. he was a list. true influencer he was and a enlightened huge, you. huge mentor to me. And, and, and not much noise outside of him interacting with you and all. Well, I didn't really have many people to look to because I really wasn't part of that Cool Kids kind of crew who were drinking those natural wines back then because they didn't come to Veritas. You know what I mean? I remember coming right. to like... I remember coming to probably it was like Marlow and Sons or someplace that right, I, that I went to back in the day. And I remember being with a bunch of friends and I was like this fancy wine guy who worked at this in the New York Palace Hotel or Veritas. And they were like, oh, the wine guy is going to choose the wine. Give him the wine list. And I remember looking at the wine list. And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't recognize one single fucking name on the wine list. <laughs> and now that's probably half the wines on my wine list at, right. at Pearl and Ash but, or, 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 or at Rebel or whatever, any of the places. But, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was a weird time because it wasn't something that was in my life. And most sommeliers have the reverse experience where they start off drinking this cool geeky stuff and then eventually they get the chance to taste all this really regal stuff. So tell people what the attraction is. Obviously, well, if you, you weren't attracted, you wouldn't move towards for it. For sure. What, what, you know. Well, I wasn't going home, at, you know, on a sommelier's celery and drinking first growth Bordeaux or you know Grand Cru Burgundy because you can't do that. You know what I mean? Tasted so I had to drink though. something. And right. So then I kind of fell in love with Beaujolais first, and then I discovered the Loire Valley, and there was some great stuff in there that really turned me on. And those are those are hotbeds for natural wine. Those guys naturally do natural wine. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's crazy. Totally. So that really kind of spawned the interest. And then when I had the ability to start buying it, which was at the hotel, I was buying like crazy and tasting all these natural wines. No one, I mean, they're still there. No one was buying those wines. Who the hell was going to go to a two Michelin star restaurant and drink a bottle of LaPierre Beaujolais like for, you know, $39 or whatever it was at the time. That's crazy. Yeah. What, so 
How would you describe, is there a difference or is there a description of organic, biodynamic, natural wines versus, you know, well-made Burgundies, Bordeaux? I mean, what's, what's the appeal? What's there? Well, I mean, there's a crossover there. I mean, all those, all those terms you use, are, there's crossover, right? There's biodynamic producers who make wine in Burgundy. For example, Domaine de la Romani Conti is a biodynamically they farmed are. domain. They yeah. follow the Rudolf Steiner. hundred percent. The ram's yeah. horn and the dirt. Lerois is another really? one that, that does the same. So uh, Chateau Latour is biodynamically certified. Does anybody know that? No, because they don't put the label all over and they don't talk about it and they don't go to raw wine fairs ever. Right. So, they kind of don't have to. Well, no, I mean, yeah. but still at the same it's so there's crossover there. And there's plenty of conventionally farmed shit that claims that they're natural wine. So I, I don't think you can I, and there's hard because you can you can say you can trust certifications and all that stuff. I think you, you have to in the end you have to taste wine. Because there are plenty of wines that are made with no chemicals in the vineyard and no sulfur in the wine and non interventional winemaking that taste like shit. They suck. And 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 you see people fawning over them. Wine making like anything else. Of some course. guy makes a good wine. Some guy makes a bad wine. Doesn't right. matter what the process right. is. But pl- I think people are more, uh, more. And I think young, young inexperienced wine wine drinkers who want to feel cool and say, "Oh, I drink natural wines," become accustomed to these unhealthy natural, unhealthy natural natural wine flavor profiles that aren't good. Like. Uh, Overwhelming amount of volatile acidity, mousiness, like yeast, yeasty kind of like uh, reductive qualities aren't necessarily they're not healthy made wines. No. Um, so I think that to to take on those things and say with, the, to forgive them and say oh not just to forgive them but to say that's that's great this wine's so fucked up this is great let's all let's all talk about how great it is I think it's gone the, you know the pendulum has swung so far to the other way where it's like a very dangerous place to be yeah very dangerous and I and I see it even with my sommeliers there are times where I taste wine with them I'm like, I'm, I'm like let's look at this for a second right or let's leave the bottle open for a day and let's check back on it and see where it's at. I try to be a, a voice of reason in some way. I'm not right. saying I know everything, or I'm I'm, I'm the person that you should try to mediate it. Or I mean, let's, balance it. Or whatever. let's think realistic about it. Yeah, just because it doesn't have sulfur in it doesn't mean it's good. But do you think a a good biodynamic or or organic wine is there a purity and an energy to that wine? That doesn't exist in a similar wine, or that's not I've had, fair to say. I've had plenty of examples of of domains that have make wine with um, that are experimenting with it, that are looking at it and, 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 and struggling with it, and realizing that they need to do it. And a lot of them have been converted. A good example is Rotor, right? A very famous sparkling wine house, like amazing, right? Right. And you know the the winemaker there is is super passionate about biodynamics and has has been trying to convert the estate over. But obviously, he's dealing with probably a board of rich guys right. who are controlling him and he has gone through the process of transitioning some of the vineyards into biodynamics and he'll walk you through the vineyards and you'll see the difference like that vineyard we're was farming with chemicals that vineyard is farming biodynamic wow. and you can see which is obviously the better one and then it'll take you into the cellar and it'll be like this wine was made from grapes that are all farmed biodynamically and this is from conventionally farmed and you can see a difference and not just see a difference there is a as you said a more energetic intense thing that's with those wines that are being farmed in this way in bio, in a biodynamic way that that it makes it taste more exciting so and, and, and you know so done well it does possess those I think traits so. again cool. within balance cool. or within, within reason yeah all right so let's talk about what you're doing now and what you're doing now is we talked a little about pearl and ash which was your first restaurant yeah Closed down, not for bad reasons. Just you're we, moving it. We so. we, clo- we closed it. Yeah, I think that you know the the um, 
we, we've, you know, the, the landlord who was my partner, um, we had a great lease when we started and, you know, the neighborhood has changed and, you know, he's a businessman. He has to, he has to conduct his business. So I think that, you know, at some point he was excited for us to, to look at getting fair market value for the space. But with the concept that we had, I don't think we could afford to do it in that space. So you're going to carry on and move it to another. So space. we're moving it to a new space. So, so that, stay know, tuned for, we're, we're looking in the West village. Yeah. We're looking, Are you in the West looking village. at 2017, 18. I think, you know, since we have t- another project and possibly even another one happening, before that, I think we're going to wait until Could after be this year. year. Okay. Um, because I think it's probably better anyway. Let's give some people some time to yeah. miss it. And <laughs> let's jump into Philly. You're yeah. opening a we're space. Opening a Philly. restaurant. Yeah, it's called, we just announced the name today. Actually, Philly.com announced the name. It's called the Walnut Street Cafe. It's uh, in How'd a you get that called, name? <laughs> really, really crazy. <laughs> Took a team of people to That's come up right. with that one. Well, it's on Walnut Street, if you must know. Oh, okay. So Walnut Street is a very famous street in Philadelphia. No, well. And, and it's a street that probably, it was known for, as Restaurant Row for a long time. Now it's Retail Row. All the restaurants have been scared away. Lebec Finn was probably the most famous right. on there. George um, Perrier. One of my very good friends, Justin Bogle, opened a restaurant in that space called The Vec, which, which um, sadly has closed since. Um, but I know the history of Philly. I've spent a lot of time there. Um, not at Flyers games, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck the Flyers. <laughs> Only because I'm afraid for my life. Uh, and uh, so we, we understood the heritage of the Wal- of Walnut Street. The building that we're, we're in is on the corner of Walnut and 30th and right over the river from Center City in West Philly. Sure. Um, so we thought, you know what? Let's pay homage to this street that really kind of was the game changer for the city and, and, and a place where there was a culinary mecca. So uh, it seems fitting to call it the Walnut Street Cafe. So and we're opening in uh, June, oh, so it's, it's mid-June, June, mid, okay. mid, mid to late June. Yeah, so we're almost Philly there. So you Philly people, um, keep your eyes out yeah. and open Fun Philly Wine List. Chef Street Daniel Eddy, our chef from Rebel, will be the chef there. He will. Brandon McCrill is my business partner. Cool. He's also the director of operations. Yes. So let's talk about Rebel, which is you know your, your current day job. Yeah. Um, and Daniel Eddy. <laughs> Yeah. Is the chef at Rebel. Correct. And Daniel is a Michelin one-star chef. One Michelin star chef. He worked at uh, Spring Restaurant in Paris for many years. Right. Daniel Rose. Super talented, awesome, fun, you know. So you have a restaurant wine program where both sides are kind of off the charts. You have an amazing menu. And let's talk about your wine list. You have a very extensive wine list. It's pretty huge. And I think one of the things that you learned and carried through the years is you're not the guy who kills and marks up wines. You talk to me about, you know, why you do that, what it is. You know, I think it's obviously when it comes to running restaurants, especially in a city like New York, there are a lot of things that you have to pay. You have to pay for your rent. You have to pay for your utilities. You have to pay for your staff, which every year now is getting more and more expensive. I mean, minimum wage in the city. Going um, up. It's it's nearly impossible to be a small business owner in this city, and I'm not going to start jumping into politics at this point. But I will say as a, as a, as a small, small business owner, as much as I want my staff to be able to succeed and live in a very expensive city, it's hard. Because right. there's, there, I, I don't have that extra money just laying around. So in the end, sure. it's going gonna, it's gonna to trickle down to our guests. And most restaurants would respond by raising prices. For us, our goal has always been to make the money based on volume. So I look at it like if we keep a low markup on the wine list, you're going to drink more bottles, which in the end is going to mean the same and amount have of money. the best offering. Right. 
and it's going to mean the correlation works. Yeah, I mean, in the I end, mean, you people, sell more wine, and the volume protects nobody, you. Very you know, rarely the, do people walk out of the rest, walk out of Rebel sober. <laughs> I'll say that much. Right. The, and you know, they're they're kind of compelled to keep drinking. So let's talk about the wine list quickly. It's obviously a mixture of mainstream, terrific wines, Bordeaux, Burgundy. We talked a little about natural wines. They're there. What's the predominant slant of the list? By country or by type of wine? Yeah, I mean, it's U.S. and French is, is the is, predominant is the, is the, is the, is the core to okay. it. Yeah, um, and I think we ha- try to strike a balance between um, classic and new wave is what I would call it as opposed to Give natural me an wine. example. Classic example of classic and a classic example of new wave. I mean, wave. we have a vertical of Chateau Margaux. We have a vertical okay. of DRC. We have a vertical of Rumier. So that's your classic. We have a vertical of Lafarge. It's not to be expensive. Plenty, and then plenty you have Michael Cruz wines. Yeah, and uh, Michael Cruz, or I, or I have, you know... Aquamarine or whatever. Ultramarine, yeah. Ultramarine, yeah. Right. Um, you know, verticals of Bernard Baudry from Chinon, verticals of, you know... Gone, gone on from San Joseph or Terry Alleman, plenty of great producers, you know, in, in the in the old world, as well as like you know a ton of wines from the Jura. Like you know, we have verticals of Domaine de la Tournelle, a producer that right. I love that makes wine in the Jura. That I that I la think, Tournelle, Domaine de la Tournelle, Domaine de la Tournelle, yeah, T O U R N E L L E, yeah, correct, okay. that's correct, yeah, Good it's a small small husband and wife winemaking team in Orbois, okay. yeah. All right, and you do some cool stuff there, and stuff that I know, and I've actually attended things you do, and you'll do. You'll describe them to me. You do a winemaker series. We do. And you've created, and you're famous for your renegade wine dinner. Let's talk quickly about each of those. So the Rebel winemaker series came. You know, wine wine dinners have some, are something that kind of came up in my life. Working the Palais, working at Tribeca Grill, we always did a ton of wine dinners. So when we when we opened Pearl and Ash, I was like, I want to do I want to do wine dinners here. It seems like a crazy idea. We had this little communal table that fit twelve people perfectly. I'm like, 12 people is the perfect amount of, of people to have at a wine dinner because it's two ounces of wine, so we can do a lot of different wines. So we came up with this idea for the Renegade Wine Dinner, which we started, well, we just announced our 100th Renegade Wine Dinner, which there are tickets available for, so if anyone out there and is that's interested. Your, that's Patrick number two. Patrick's Patrick picks number two. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if you trust Patrick from what you hear or what you know... And you're into wine. The list is off the charts. Yeah. You can make reservations reservations at rebelnyc.com. If, if, if you, you want to sample <laughs> some, you know, knockout wine. And it's on, there's a website that has all the wines. It's renegadewinedinner.com, which right. all the dinners are listed. We show every dinner that we've done for the past 100 dinners. So that started at, at, at Pearl and Ash. And then once we opened um, Rebel, we decided we wanted to take a different slant on it and actually have the winemakers there. Because the renegade dinners, if you've been, they're very un... They're, they're not... They're they're educational in whatever way that you as the guest want to have it. There's well, not a would you speech. say Renegade is more theme driven? Yeah, but it's also and the more it's winemaker. More, you know, you have a winemaker, and you it's know, less his wine. less educational. I would say okay, like it's more about experiential. The Renegade dinner, it's about what you make it. Like right. you get to taste all these great wines, but there's nobody giving a speech about the wines or talking at you. It's about having fun, drinking and eating, and you know communing with people that are at the table. At the winemaker series, we have the winemaker there, which I think if you're going to have anybody talk about the wine, why the fuck do you want me to talk about the wine? Who cares what I think? Have the guy who made them talk about the wine. And that's you, really you what matters. And curate who you bring in. So, I mean, you've got interesting guys coming in. For sure. We try to, we try to, we try to, in the end, we try to bring people in that we know our guests will be excited about it. Right. Not, you know, not going to say that there are producers that we wouldn't work with, but there are definitely producers that we know are more interested Interesting to our guests. So we right. try to follow their lead. So if you go on the website, the website is... RebelWineMakerSeries.com or RenegadeWineDinner.com. Right. And if you look at past events, you'll see the depth and the kind of diversity of you know what's going on there. And it's paired with amazing food. 
Um, Patrick, we're talking to Patrick Capiello from Rebel. We're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about 40 Ounce, a project of yours. I'm going to subject you to our wine list. And then we're going to taste a couple of wines on the air, of which one of them is a 40 ounce. So you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Patrick Capiello, proprietor and partner at uh, Rebel on the Bowery in New York City. I'm going to subject Patrick now to our wine list. I'm going to shoot him a bunch of questions and see what his take is. Don't overthink these. I, I promise I will. quick answers. <laughs> All right. I, 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 don't, I don't know how, well, how fast I can think anymore. All right. So first question is, what are you drinking now? Not right here, but what, you know, is it seasonal? Are you trying things? Are you stuck on a region? Um, you know, I mean, I, f- I find myself really stuck in the northern Rhone right now, and, and I have been probably for the... F- I mean, I've always loved it, but in the past... You're staying year, with two, it. I mean, I've been stuck there just because I'm kind of compelled as to what's happening. But there. are you leaning towards Cornas, or are you leaning towards St. Joseph? You know, I, I mean, are you... I think probably it's more about winemaking techniques in the Northern Rhone that's become really compelling to me. Like whole cluster, whole cluster Syrah, and maybe that's just the genre as opposed to saying just the Northern Rhone. I would say whole cluster Syrah is turning me on now. Tell more people than ever. what whole cluster is. So it's when they harvest the grapes, they don't actually destem the grapes. So a lot of and you don't destem the grapes, so you don't let the juice come out, right? Right. You just throw all the grapes in. You do right. some foot pressing, and then you let it. You let it. Some producers will let it ferment. A Give little me carbonic, uh, an carbonically. example or two of some good Northern uh, all Rhone whole, whole cluster. Like Darden Rebo is one that I Spell. really like. Like a lot. D-A-R-D and R-I-B-O. Okay. Uh, Pierre Gonon, uh, uh, which is Jean Gonon, who's making the wine there. Um, and then in the New World, somebody like Pax Male, who makes it at Wind, Wind Gap, right. and then Pax Wines, all whole cluster. Um, yeah, uh, Raj Parr has a, a Syrah that he just started working, that he's working with whole cluster. Right. Um, White Rose, the one we mentioned earlier, is, also, uh, is a whole cluster Pinot Noir. So, yeah. Good I would ones. Think whole cluster is something I'm excited about right now. 
Um, give me your favorite wine and food pairing. Uh, if you say champagne and oysters, I'm throwing you. I would, I would, I would, I would, I would never say that. Um, I would say, I would say Cabernet Franc and pork shoulder. I, I, I like the, the, I like, I like that pairing a lot. I mean, because you know, Cabernet Franc has great tannin, which helps cut through that kind of fattiness of the pork. But also, there's that earthiness that both of those, both of those things have. And, and it's give me a like, couple of good Cabernet Francs. What's the region? that good ones come from and give me a producer yeah I would say you know staying in areas like Chinon is one place that I, that I think is great and we, we mentioned Bernard Baudry oh. Ogre Raffaut is super old school if you want to go someplace um, it's kind of off the radar in, in Turon which is like central Loire Turon T-O-U-R-I-N right uh, um, Turon uh, there's a producer called Garlier that's spell. there that's a oh, god damn I don't know if I can spell Garlier give me your best G-A-R-I-L-L-I-E-R Garlier I won't make you spell anymore besides besides Rebel and you're out and about a lot uh huh your favorite wine restaurant and or bar and I want you to answer that where the slant towards the wine the service the selection is important I would say uh, company the, the, the Caleb the, yeah, yeah Caleb, Caleb's wine Caleb and then good. 10 Bells I've been going to forever like and Sev is great she's a really awesome uh, a sommelier and super passionate and you know it's fun I, she always turns me on to something new there when, when I'm cool. there so and they're also in the neighborhood so. I'll tell Pascaline you left her at <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's, you said wine bar she's a restaurant okay <laughs> I said wine restaurant you Said, I think you bar. said wine no, bar. It's right oh, there. The well, question. If I'm if, overprepared. If, if, if you're, if you're going to tell worry. me restaurant, I would say I would say you're right. <laughs> There's no wrong answer, and I didn't ask you that <laughs> to sort of corner you. Sounded you know, like you just man. did. I'll be honest I did. with you. <laughs> All right. Give me your favorite all-time wine. Was it a birth wine? Was it my the first? my like my my uh, my my epiphany wine? My, my epiphany wine? I, I I can tell you what that is in three seconds. Chateau was, Margot. Uh, no, uh, it was Clovejo from from Leroy, nineteen ninety. Not that it was something I was drinking a lot. Yoshi Takamura gave me a taste when I worked at Tribeca Grill. And so it that's a Burgundy. Change my mind. Uh, yeah, it's a Grand Cru Burgundy from a uh, producer who was partners at D- DRC forever. A woman who's and what was it about it? Just it just I never had old Burgundy. It was the first time, so it was just I was like, "Wow, like this is something that's I don't know." It just I don't I can't say what it was about it, but it, it was all put together. It changed my mind. It changed right. my life one hundred percent. So that was the Clovoge Clovoge from from uh, Leroy Leroy, Leroy. Yeah, nineteen ninety. All right, help me with this. I got my son Ben sitting here. He's yep. going to a dinner uh-huh. with six eight people. He's got to bring three bottles of wine. I need you to recommend the best wine around fifteen bucks, give or take. I need a red. I need a <laughs> it's white. A tough you got to go man. retail. It's, it's, t- it's tough because there's not much wine left at that price point anymore. Honestly, and what I do you know? Have to be I'll give you the white. I mean, a Muscadet. Uh, yeah, I mean, it will always be the answer, Muscadet. It's, okay. it's the last great, great region for fifteen dollars. Beaujolais, you can barely talk about that anymore for um, fifteen. Yeah, I would say you know you can go to the Maconay, like Coach Chalonnais. Uh, I think in in the Languedoc, there's a lot of good value there to be found. Um, you know, I mean, I think we can talk about places like Chile that there's some interesting stuff happening there. But right. you know, I mean, I think it's hard because. Those are big, broad brush strokes to say about regions, and there's a lot of shitty wine made in all those places. So to say that it's that easy to walk in a wine store, I think... I think if you're looking for a $15 bottle of wine, it's going to be great. I think find a merchant that is smart and knows how to buy wine, right, that you trust, and then trust that person to help you find something. Make it buyer-specific. Discovery Wines in my neighborhood is an awesome example. That wine store is great, and they know how to deliver great value, and Trevor, who's the wine buyer there, is a smart fucking guy. So I would probably more rely on people who would work in that venue. So I've asked this question for about a half a year, you know, best wine around 15 bucks. Mm -hmm. I guess you validated 
And you're not wrong. I mean, 15 bucks is kind of a tough... You've got to make that 20 bucks now. Is it? So I, that's I, my I, question, I mean, and I would defer to you. I, I, is I don't, don't want to drink a $15 bottle of wine. It's probably going to give me a fucking headache. Is 20 <laughs> the good low? I think, and I think that... I think, if listen, you go lower, yeah, now you're fishing you Have first. a couple of Mezcal shots before you have the bottle of wine, so drink it slower. I mean, don't, you don't always have to get drunk on wine. I think, you know, wine should be something you have with a meal. Right. Start with a cocktail. Right. Finish with a bunch of beers. Have a nice bottle of wine in the middle. All right, let's finish the wine <laughs> list with... Tell me your favorite band and your favorite all-time album. My favorite band and my favorite all-time album. That's a very tough question to answer. I would Give say me a couple answers. Well, I mean, age. David Bowie is is by far my favorite, my favorite artist, and I would say Hunky, True that. Hunky Dory is probably one of my favorite albums. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Bowie, Bowie. Yeah. Uh, but another album, I mean, or, or I mean, Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream is probably you know an epic album for me as a kid. That was in the '90s, really. Nevermind by Nirvana. Pearl Jam 10, if I want to date myself. But as far as like what albums that I love. Guy wears a Metallica shirt every other day and doesn't say Metallica. (laughs) That's okay. I love Metallica, but that's a layup. That's easy. I know, but I I think you hit it on those. Those are all classic albums. And they're important. I'm also a vinyl lover, so that makes it easy. They're important to you because they came through when you were coming through. Yeah, my brothers taught me a lot about music, and Bowie was one that my oldest brother loved. You can never go wrong with Bowie. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about 40 ounce, but we're going to kind of wrap it into our weekly wine sip. Every okay. week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're going to taste two wines. Normally we taste one, but I want to taste Patrick's wine. We're going to taste the old, which is a 2003 Rocchioli estate grown Chardonnay, and we're going to taste a 40 ounce. Which is the brand name. What'd you bring in? The Muscadet or the I brought the Muscadet. Yeah, Muscadet. Okay, yeah. a 40 ounce French Muscadet made by Patrick and. It's is not made by me. Is Julian still Ju- making it? Julian Broad is the winemaker. Okay, I, I just was the person who conceptualized okay. it. Okay, yeah. Your project, though. Yeah. Uh, the Rocchioli is probably only available by auction. You probably could pick it up for 40, 50, 60 bucks. And the 40 ounce is available at good wine stores, better wine stores, and it's retailing for 15 up and down. Yeah. Thirteen to sixteen dollars, depending on on the store. I would say. All right, yeah, so 17. can you tell me a little more? Let's just give me a quick thing about the Rocchioli. So we're drinking <clears throat> a fourteen year old Rocchioli. Totally mo- from my cellar, good provenance. S- is it holding up? S- yeah, totally. It's great. And 03 which was you know was a was a warm vintage in, in, in Nash, like internationally in, in California it was no different than it was in France or not no different, but it was a warm vintage. So, um, but it's I think it's great. I mean, color is great. It looks so. It's it, a, a golden yellow. Yeah, for sure. And. Nose. Aromatically, it smell it, it has kind of those ripe pear kind of aromatics that you get with with Chardonnay, but it has you know some flintiness underneath there too, which I think is like you know more, more commonly associated with Burgundy. I mean, let's throw it over the tongue. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, it's great. Good acid, huge good minerality, feel. and medium it's good to full length. bodied. Yeah, it's yeah, feely acid. Really great and good, Holding great up length. Nice, like huh? you can still you can still taste it a, a few seconds after somebody. Yeah, very good. I wouldn't have imagined this wine would be this fresh. Me neither. Yeah. It is pretty fresh for. Oh, we got a few cal- more. Bo- we got a few more bottles. Of it's a good winemaker, and mm. the provenance was good. Let's talk best. about the mouthfeel. Yeah, I would say it has like you know it's textural and it, 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 it has a little bit of viscosity. It hangs there, um, and you know the the there's some there's like kind of a. A zestiness to it, but yes. yes, there's also kind of a f- opulence to it. It holds in there. Yeah, really good. Really good. I wonder what the alcohol level is on that because it holds it well. Back then, the alcohol levels were higher. Yeah, fourteen percent. Is this is this 
a typical big Cali shard? Is it? I would say it? it's. I think I would say it's 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 um, a good example of wines from that era and from that region. And okay. I had a chance to taste a lot of those. So I would I would say that this is this is. This is what you would find with Marcuson and Martinelli right. and Paul Meyer and other other producers Good of that producers. of that of that decade. Or, uh, I'm happy yeah. to see that it's holding. Yeah, up. congratulations. All right, it's we're going to save the best for last now. Ben, will you <laughs> open up the uh, and and we're not comparing the two. No, it's not. You know, it's apples so and oranges, but yeah. Let's talk about the project now. Okay. Uh, the wine is called Forty Ounce. That's the they name make of a, it. Ro- a rosé. We're drinking the Muscadet. We make a rosé and a Muscadet. The Muscadet was the first wine that came out last spring. It was 2015 vintage of Muscadet. It's made by a young guy named Julian Brode, who is, uh, I think, kind of the next generation of great winemakers in the Appalachian. Um, he uh, he tr- he worked with uh, people like uh, like uh, Marc Olivier from Pepier. Um, and then I'm, I'll go. Ba- I'm going to go back to the Rocchio. Okay, I, I, I'll drink it from. <laughs> Here's a cup. Okay, so um, so Olivier Pepier, m- those are great. M- m- yeah, producers. yeah, for, for sure. And I think uh, you know what what he was able to do um, with, with what Julian learned from those guys was the idea of making wines that have intensity and power, but also finesse and you know you know true to the terroir that they're grown in. So he he makes uh, he works with all all organic and biodynamic farming. This vineyard is transforming from organic to biodynamic currently. Um, these are 30-year-old uh, vines. The grape that they grow in, in Muscadet is called Malone de Bourgogne, and it's a common pairing with oysters, actually, now you mention right. it. Like, well, Muscadet is a great oyster. Great. Seafood. So I was visiting the winery with, with uh, my partner, Chris Dezer, who, who we, we came up, we conceptualized the wine together with, uh, with. And uh, this bottle, which looks a lot like a 40-ounce, if you grew up... A 40-ounce malt. Yeah, it looks just like the same bottle. It's a screw top. Yep. It's, it's sort of that soda 40-ounce yeah. you know, malt It's bottle. actually a liter bottle. It but looks cheap, but it's not. Right. Well, and that was the idea, was when we, when we saw it on the shelf, we were like, shit, this, what, what is that bottle? And he said, well, we, we bottle grape juice in it and sell it at the market. And we said, well, would you bottle wine in it? And he's like... So you saw it at Julian's? We saw it at Julian's, at Julian's winery in, in the cellar. That they, inspired they bottled grape you juice to... Right. So we asked him if he would be interested in bottling wine in it, and he said, I guess, but, but why? Because they don't have ounces in France, right? Right. So it's a metric system. Right. So it didn't, it didn't translate to him at all. And after we explained to him the reasoning and the idea behind it, and the idea behind it has always been, like Chris and I have always been had an idea of using alternative packaging to, to, create, to make wine more friendly, more approachable, take away the pretense. And something like this does that. It's a cultural reference, but at the same time, it's also a, 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 it's, it's bringing down the pretense. And it's a wine that has a great value. So we, we looked at this as being an opportunity to do that. I came home from France after talking to Julian. I said, let me see what I can come up with. Um, when was this? A couple of years this ago? This was 2015. A couple of years ago. And uh, I came back and met with a designer friend of mine and gave her the concept, Carolyn Frisch, who I think is a great designer and did a great job with this label. We, we, I talked a lot about inspirational kind of images, like uh, 40 ounces of like, of like Old English and Mickey's Big Mouth, the ones that I drank as a kid. I mean, I grew up Mickey. in skateboard, skateboard culture in upstate New York, and right. I drank a lot of 40s as a kid through get high school and college. Quick. Yeah, I mean, it's a cheap way to get a, get a buzz. Yeah. So we, we kind of conceptualized this idea of trying to package this like this, make it affordable, make it approachable, make it fun. And make uh, it quality. And make it great. And, and, you know, healthy wine made organically and, uh, and have it taste great, which was the most important thing. I mean, what do you think of it? You just tasted well, it. Well, let's, let's, yeah. I want you, because you're better at this. So the color is kind of a pale yellow, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk about the nose. Yeah. I'm too busy drinking it. Sorry. I mean, aromatically, minerality is the first thing I get, right? I it has get kind a of a crushed oyster which shell. Which you get with uh, Muscadet. Anyway. 100%. 
And there's a little bit of that fruitiness. I think you get some of that stone fruit in it, right? Yes. There's, yeah. I mean, definitely, I, definitely stone fruit, wet yep. stone. Yeah. You know, a little of that. I mean, good characteristics. Yeah, thanks. And then... Little you know, wildflower. Yeah, floral. There's a floral aromatic as Definitely, well. Definitely, you know, not overpowering, but there. So it's got a great nose. All right, let's throw it over to the tongue, boys. <laughs> Terrific acidity, right? Yeah. I would say right in the middle, medium mouthfeel. Yeah. Not light, not heavy. Yep. Medium, medium, light. Good, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, good first attack. Um, little pear. Yeah. Green apple. Sure. Um, good acidity. I love that you're doing this. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Good acidity. Yeah, good acidity, right? And it has length and, you know, and persistence. You wouldn't expect... A little bit of spiciness to it. Yeah. What? So what else do you get? You get a little spiciness. Spice, for sure. I would Definitely say... Definitely the acidity. Yeah, lingering acidity. Um yeah, minerality, same thing. has kind of a chalkiness to it, right? Yes. Kind of, it's like lip smacking. The stone and the chalk. It's, yeah. um, it has a nice little delicious factor for this kind of wine. You know, it's good on its own. It'll be great with food. So let's talk about what's a good food pairing with this. As we said, uh, oysters, I think, are, are great. S- seafood. Yeah, I mean, and I think, Let's you know, go out of the box. What else would this be good with? You know, I would, I would, I would have, like, like, charcuterie, anything like, like, if you, like, haven't, before a meal, like, like, pate, or, I mean, if you look at areas where charcuterie is, tends to you be can hold dominant, up to the like, fat. in the sauce, yeah, I mean, right. high acid Rieslings are the things that you were pairing with charcuterie, so I think right. that this, this fits in that same sort of okay. area. All right, so, the wine is called 40 Ounce. Right. 40 OZ. Mm-hmm. Oh, you went. Yeah, no. Oh, you no, no. Actually, you know, it's funny because I wrestled with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's F O R T Y. Yep. O U N C. Forty yeah. ounce. Forty ounce wines. dot com um, is the website. Yeah. The Muscadet <laughs> is that's the. That's, that's the, the flagship wine. No, 40 Ounce Wines is the website. Okay. Muscadet was the first wine we did, and then we just did the rosé. The rosé. Which, uh, which became kind of an internet, like, uh, overnight viral I, sensation. I, I recommend it highly. I think Patrick... Thank uh, you. You and Khloe Kardashian, you know, she was drinking it the other day. Oh, boy. Somebody sent me a photo. Listen, that's fine. I'm happy to have her be a spokesperson. Things are going great, and then you mush me right in the same category there. You know what? There are yeah, worse yeah, people yeah, you can have promoting here. your wine than Khloe um, Kardashian. I don't necessarily want to spend any time with her, but I'm glad that she's drinking the wine. All right. Go back to uh, the Rocchioli for a second. Mm-hmm. It's an uh, older Chardonnay. It's held yes. up well. It has, you know, age characteristics. What's a good pairing for that? I mean, I think with this, you, you got a baller bottle of wine. Yeah, you know, good maker. It's older. Yeah, special. What For do you sure. put there? I think. I think at that point you want to. Uh, <laughs> Pat's par- Patrick's parents are leaving. No, that's not my parents. <laughs> <laughs> sure not. Go ahead. Um, uh, I would say something like you know, like a grilled fish would be great with this. Anything with butter is going to be good the with grill, this lobster. The grill gives it a little uh, extra added. And yeah, the butter gives it some like it could cut butter poached that. lobster in this would be like. I mean, you know, that's probably that's probably uh, that, and I'm ready for bed. All right, all right, <laughs> we're going to wrap the show up. So we tasted the 2003 Rocchioli Estate Grown Chardonnay. Thank God the California Chardonnays with good provenance are holding up well. And we tasted a new wine, Patrick's 40 Ounce, um, which is currently available now and probably the perfect summer wine. I mean, you slam four or five of these in a cooler, <laughs> head out to the beach. You didn't spend a lot of money, and the quality to value ratio yeah. is like a home run. You're going to sleep well. So keep, keep a lookout <laughs> for that. Patrick put his uh, heart and his experience into that. All right. 
if you have a question, a wine happening, or an event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Follow us on Facebook, and that's under the Grape Nation. We're going to post uh, Patrick's wine list answers on our Facebook page. Um, we'll give a mention to the 40 ounce. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and Twitter at BenRuby. And Patrick, where can people find you on social media? Patrick Wine. Patrick, at Patrick Wine at for Patrick Instagram. Wine and Twitter. At Patrick Wine for Twitter. And I'm not on Facebook as we've already established. Okay, which is fine. <laughs> All right, I want to thank our guest, Patrick Cappiello, for coming in. We probably could have spent another hour or two with him, which means he has to come back at some point. So Happy do you to agree back. to that? 100%. Let's All right. get David Gordon on the show once I do, though. Patrick is listening. the wine director and partner at Rebel in New York City. That's downtown in the Bowery. He's opening Walnut Street Cafe in Philly in June. Keep an eye out for Pearl and Ash probably next year. I want to thank our engineer Vitor and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.